This is Market Currents from Northern Trust, where we explore facts, patterns, and expert opinions to answer today's most difficult market questions. Welcome to Market Currents. I'm Katie Nixon, Chief Investment Officer of Wealth Management at Northern Trust, and I'm looking forward to a great discussion on a very timely topic as investors contemplate their equity exposure. So there was a recent article in the Financial Times which said that for investors and over the past several years, Europe presents a face only a mother could love. It's true that particularly over the last one, three, five, and 10 years, and given the extreme outperformance by the U.S. over the past couple of years, the longer-term relative performance looks challenged as well, even though we did go through periods of relative outperformance of Europe over the U.S., We've long been advocates of the global portfolio of investors taking advantage of all the opportunities across the world, but this has been increasingly difficult as the U.S. has pulled away so dramatically from Europe from a performance perspective. Now, that said, we continue to believe in global diversification, and we're starting to see some meaningful changes in Europe that give us even more confidence in that view. So what are these changes, and do we expect a brighter future for investors in European equities? So to help me with this discussion, I've invited Northern Trust Chief Investment Strategist for EMEA and APAC, Wouter Sterkenboom. Wouter, let's dig into some of the most important elements, and thank you so much for helping us with this discussion. Of course. Thanks for having me, Katie. Let's start with setting the stage. Um, since the unification, I think you can say that European financial conditions, economic growth, inflation, interest rates, credit spreads, equity markets have best been characterized by fits and starts particularly since the global financial crisis. And since that time, Vauder, we've had a couple of head fakes from Europe, indications that perhaps some of the structural headwinds were dissipating, only then to be subsequently disappointed. So let's start to peel back this onion. And let's start with a fiscal policy backdrop here, which I guess is pretty impossible to disentangle from the political backdrop. And maybe you can give us some perspective on where we've come from, from a fiscal, uh, from a fiscal angle, um, that austerity mindset, and how the COVID crisis might have changed things. Sure. And, and thanks for that introduction. I think you're, you're hitting the, the nail on the head there that there has been a disappointing overall trajectory for Europe for a long time, but at the same time, things have been changing. And sometimes it's really hard to sort of keep track of the the positive changes when the overall context uh, is still one that is, as you rightly put it, challenged. But let's just indeed kick it off with the fiscal side of things, because I do think that that's a really good place to start to underline how at least one part of the European mindset has been changing. As you already said, there had been prior to COVID uh, a bit of an austerity mindset, particularly after the great financial crisis. We saw Europe really being almost its own worst enemy, too careful, too cautious in providing stimulus to recover the the ground that was lost. And as a result, uh, basically notching up some, some pretty sclerotic growth rates. And I actually looked them up Uh, to underline just how big of a gap that meant. So Europe, in terms of GDP per capita, which is my preferred measure of underlying real GDP growth, uh, trailed the U.S. over the last 10 years by about 50 basis points a year, which opens up a gap uh, of about nine percentage points in cumulative per capita GDP growth. And if you look at, um, sorry, 6%, and if you look at total GDP, it's actually as much as 9% because European uh, population growth is, of course, lower than in the U.S. And I think that that fiscal part of the equation 
was a big part of that underlying performance, that disappointing underlying performance. And it really came from the notion that we had really suffered a major balance sheet um, a crisis, and now the only way to repair that damage was through austerity. But of course, what that misses and turned out to miss uh, very painfully so was that you know if you have assets and liabilities, if you only focus on the liabilities without growing the assets, uh, you 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 might actually find that that's really hard to do. Uh, because your assets do not grow as quickly as they could or actually shrink even while your liabilities hardly budge at all. That's the whole debate around GDP, uh, debt to GDP ratios. Now we're seeing change. Now we're seeing Europe really uh, unifying around a more common growth strategy. We're seeing how uh, austerity agendas have slipped uh, away, how political support for greater deficits has massively increased and how a pro-growth fiscal policy agenda has taken hold. We're seeing that both at the national level as well as uh, at the European level with that major 800 billion next EU generation fund being launched that both that shows both uh, ambition in terms of investing in the growth engines of the future, but also of course shows how Europe wants to tackle this uh, problem as a unit as opposed to a single parts uh, with a more country-based focus. So that's, I think that's a really positive change. The next generation EU fund also, like I said, focuses on those growth engines of the future. So much more emphasis on digitization and technological growth, uh, as well as the green transition. So I think that part of the equation from a fiscal perspective really shows um, that there has been a change in Europe, there has been a change in mindset, and hopefully that will start to be reflected in a better outcome in terms of uh, GDP growth as well. So, Vader, you've you've referenced the really meaningful changes um, in in fiscal policy and posture. Really, let's shift gears and talk about monetary policy. Now, the ECB has certainly been center stage for you know since the global financial crisis uh, in their response then, which has been you know criticized, I guess, uh, looking back. Um, but now they have seemed to have, as, as you referenced, similar to the to the fiscal outlook, a very different response to the COVID crisis. Can you sort of juxtapose the, the reactions to global financial crisis and the COVID crisis and talk a little bit about uh, the future for the ECB and the role that they're going to play in uh, the European recovery? Sure. So I think what happened with the ECB after the great financial crisis was basically a reluctance to let go of the policy framework that they had been using up until then. They saw there were tensions within the system, but they decided to basically be a firefighter if those tensions uh, grew too large uh, without recognizing that there had been a fundamental shift in terms of uh, how policy should be addressed, not just from a pure inflation targeting perspective, but also from a uh, sustaining uh, economic growth perspective, and uh, and of course we all know the, the the best example of that mistake was the was the interest rate hikes in 2011, uh, highly criticized and in retrospect, of course, uh, very uh, fairly big mistakes from uh, a monetary policy perspective. But of course, you know every dark cloud comes with a silver lining, and the silver lining for the ECB was learning from those experiences, learning how the asset side of the balance sheet needs to be nurtured and how monetary policy can help do so 
by providing fiscal policy with the means to do so, both in terms of interest rates uh, as well as liquidity. Um, and that, I think, was a, a big change. So it, it, it really went from making sure that Greece and Italy um, didn't blow up to how can we actually make sure not only that they don't blow up, but that they also have the tools available to them to support growth on a sustained basis going forward and thereby uh, lower the underlying tensions that we saw creep up in those credit spreads, for instance, uh, relative to German government bonds. Uh, I think that was that was important. And, and since then, uh, I would say that you know, Draghi has received a lot of credit from me as well uh, in sustaining that new posture, uh, even against the, uh, the wishes of some central bankers, such as the one from the Netherlands and Germany, which had mistakenly sort of kept uh, pushing the, the old ways. Um, that is now continuing under Lagarde, which means that the ECB keeps on providing support where it deems necessary and keeps on expanding its remit into areas such as income inequality and green transition, basically making sure that those areas that it sees as future potential risks, again, to the growth outlook, that asset side of the balance sheet, um, that those are uh, those are at least from a monetary policy perspective are going to be supported. And of course, they also still have a bit of room for maneuver. Yes, uh, inflation is elevated in the Eurozone like it is elsewhere in the world, but it's much more driven by transitory factors such as energy and tax changes and much less by uh, things like wage growth. Uh, and that means that the ECB still has room for maneuver to provide the incremental support, even though other central banks, most notably the Fed, of course, is starting to move in the other direction. So I think um, the ECB side of things is is, is support now um, and is going to stay there for the time being. So, Vader, it's often said uh, policymakers don't uh, don't don't do much outside a crisis. Um, and we certainly have had a crisis with the global pandemic. One of the questions that comes up is, you know, as we ponder the future of fiscal and monetary policy in Europe, is is what we're seeing a real change in mindset that's durable? Because one of the one of the questions we get is is around the fact that some of these programs that you referenced have expiration dates, right? They're not forever. So once these expire, do you anticipate that we'll continue to see this kind of positive fiscal impulse and monetary impulse that will support the economic recovery? I think we will. And you're right. right? They have an expiration date and, and some governments are more happy about the programs than others. And that means that you could be sort of worried about uh, how sustainable this new posture is until you take a global perspective, that is. And, and that really keeps coming back to me as a really important backdrop, which is, you know, Europe likes to act uh, at least occasionally uh, as if it's alone in the world, um, but it's not. And, it, and it's, it's very aware that it's not because we are very dependent for many things uh, uh, on the world around us. But when you look at the growth engines that need to be nurtured now, that's not a five-year uh, five agenda. It's much longer than that. And if we don't sustain that effort, we will simply be outcompeted by the US and China amongst perhaps others, such as India. Uh, so I think that necessity to compete in the global world uh, and to be a part um, of that world in a competitive fashion uh, is going to sustain uh, these efforts. So it's, even if it's not out of goodwill, it will be out of necessity is what I'm saying.
So you referenced um, earlier, I think you called it sclerotic growth in Europe. And one of the historical criticisms of the European economic model is that it's not flexible. Labor rules, for example, make it difficult for companies to right-size when they need to, to manage wages, etc. This has been considered a structural headwind. Um, Have those kinds of issues been resolved in your view? Well, they've certainly improved. Um, You're absolutely right that uh, labor market flexibility in, the, in Europe has, uh, has not been as high as, for instance, in the U.S. or other parts of the world. And that has probably been uh, a headwind to economic growth simply because it, it, it sets a hurdle uh, for companies to invest. Right? You have to be really sure to hire people if, if it's really hard to get rid of them. Uh, so two things have happened. First of all, the European labor market has become more flexible. Uh, We've seen that, for instance, very, very clearly in Spain that really um, put through a structural reform that uh, made the labor market a lot more flexible than it was before. We're seeing similar steps being taken in other European countries, uh, including in Italy now under Draghi. And by and large, um, labor market flexibility has improved. I wouldn't wouldn't put it on par with a country like the U.S. Clearly, uh, our social safety so concerns are a bit different from the ones in the U.S., but certainly, but the the improvement has been there. And I think if you look at labor market participation rates, that also shows one uh, positive side of that. So first of all, those have been increasing, and depending on which measure you use, we have to be a little careful with the data here. Um, they are actually. Uh, uh, on par in the case of France, or even higher in the case of Germany uh, than they are in the US. And and part of that is because some of the labor market flexibility that has been uh, created is is focused on female participation, particularly the ability to work part-time. That's been a great success uh, boosting female participation rates. Uh, And another part, of course, is what I mentioned earlier, is just a general, more flexible approach to labor. So Uh, I do think um, that we are seeing positive changes here, but I will also admit that uh, we haven't yet seen that result in a major uptick in structural economic growth. I also think it's too early for that, so don't get me wrong. This is something that takes time to show up in the data, Um, but uh, I also want to be sort of clear and honest that this is early days and we still need to reap the benefits of these changes over the years to come. So, Vader, let's let's get to what matters to investors: uh, the equity market. So, the dimensions of most of the popular European benchmarks are really different from what we have in the U.S. Um, can you talk about the differences and and how you view these? Sure. I mean, and this is this is obviously a major topic of conversation, right? First of all, we we have to recognize the fact that our regional or geographical indices. Um, you know, they are an imperfect approximation of what you're actually buying into. If you if you buy the U.S. index and you buy Apple, you're clearly not buying just U.S. exposure. You're buying um, uh, you're buying global exposure because Apple is a global company selling iPhones and Macs uh, all over the world. But still, it is what it is, and the the sector weights and the geographical exposures that they bring um, do need. You need to know what you're buying. You need to understand what's happening there. So let me quickly run through some of those numbers for you so you get a sense of uh, what the differences are. So if you're buying Europe, you're buying more staples, more financials, so 8% more staples, 5% more financials, 
7% more industrials and 5% more materials than what you get in the US market. What do you get less of? Well, most people know you get less IT, 21% less. The US has 30, Europe has nine, and you get less telcos, but you get less, 7% uh, less than what you get in the US. So what that means is in Europe, you get a lot more cyclicals, you get more value, uh, and you get less growth uh, than you get in the US. The US is a more growthy benchmark, Europe is a more value oriented benchmark. And that matters because obviously uh, in a time when, when uh, people were reaching for growth, um, the US has done really well. And of course, the growth engines, the companies exposed to those growth engines of the future, uh, those US tech companies in particular, have just done phenomenally well. And Europe as a result has lagged significantly uh, because of that. Uh, the question is, of course, um, will that change? Well, first of all, it's important to note that some of it already has changed. So the tech weight in Europe over the last five years has doubled. Uh, we have seen a drop in, um, uh, in financials. Uh, we have seen a drop in energy in Europe. So the trends there uh, in terms of becoming a little bit more growth and a little less value have been there. Uh, it's just uh, that the, the starting point was so different that, of course, the the weights that I just mentioned still hold true. Um, I think it's also good to note um, that in terms of profitability, we are seeing um, perhaps potential for a little bit of catch up from a European perspective as well. Uh, profit margins in Europe are lower than they are in the US, but they are rising. And of course we know that US profit margins are both historically very high and have been recently boosted by the Trump tax cuts. So perhaps, those are uh, going to be a little. Those are going to be a little bit more constrained to rise than the Europe than their European counterparts, allowing perhaps for a little bit of convergence on that front. But that is sort of the picture in terms of how those two indices compare. So, Vader, it's interesting. I mean, you just outlined what is uh, oftentimes an argument against investing in your in Europe over the U.S. and that is you're not buying into quote unquote innovation. Um, you know, investors want to buy growth. They want to buy U.S. tech stocks. So what is the argument now for investing in cyclicals? And you mentioned the heavy weighting in European banks and financials. There's been a kind of a rocky history um, with with European banks. Is, is it different this time? Uh, I, I'm going to be very careful here and sort of saying, oh, this is this is the um, uh, this is the start of this uh, great recovery in these uh, bombed out sectors like energy and financials. Uh, but I will say um, that uh, they have improved massively. Their valuation starting points have improved massively. And looking at the um, macroeconomic backdrop, they might, and I'm saying here might in capital letters, they might actually be a little bit better positioned to profit from uh, what is going to be likely the start of an interest rate hike cycle in the US and perhaps in in England and other parts of the world as well. So uh, there are um, green shoots. There is a case to be made, uh, but at the same time, um, uh, clearly, um, you know, th those, uh, especially those really big tech companies that are just making money hand over fist, they have a great story to tell. You're paying for that privilege, right? I, I can tell you that, you know, if you look at the um, if you look at the PEs, the, the valuation levels of those uh, indices, right, there is a clear gap there. So if you look at the fact that the 
the PE, the forward PE, on a sector-adjusted basis in the US is 21.5, whereas the European one is 17.3. So that's a gap of four PE points. Historically, the average gap is one and a half. Um, that's, you know, that's the other part of the equation there. So uh, I do believe those are great companies. I'm just saying you're paying for the privilege of investing in them, and that needs to be taken into consideration as well. Absolutely. Valuation matters a lot. Um, so let, let's bring it home here, Vader. We've talked about the changes in fiscal policy, uh, the changes in monetary mindset and mandate. Um, we've talked about the differences in the sector com- composition of European equity benchmarks against the U.S., and we talked about valuation and catalysts. As we think about the global portfolio, what is the single best argument today to to have investors diversify into European equities? Because what we find is, especially with U.S. investors, there's that home country bias. So they're typically very overweighted U.S. stocks um, and underweighted non-U.S., typically European and, and emerging markets. But when it comes to Europe, what's what's the best argument for getting getting invested there right now? Yeah, and, and look, and I get it, right? If if you are a U.S. citizen and you're seeing your own home index do so incredibly well, I understand how you would be um, inclined to put your eggs into that one basket. But at the same time, that is what you're doing, right? You're 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 not diversifying, so you're just leaving that diversification benefit. And it's regional and geopolitical diversification. It's it's uh, it's monetary policy diversification, earnings diversification, as well as sector diversification. You're leaving all of those on the table uh, to do so. So that that's that's always. I know you've already mentioned this at the start, but that's always my uh, starting point uh, arguments to to keep those portfolios global. Uh, if you then sort of switch from that more strategic, longer term perspective, which includes hopefully for people um, the valuation side as well, the fact that you are uh, able to buy exposure in Europe and in other parts of the world as well at a at a lower valuation levels. Um, that's that's that combination diversification and valuation is is a strategic part of the argument. But then if you look at the tactical side of things, uh, I do also think that you know Europe is uh, is slated for some pretty robust economic growth here, despite some of the short term headwinds from Omicron and energy price increases. Uh, 2022 is is looking good, has a, has a higher growth expectation than U.S. by a smidge, but still. Um, but that runway of fiscal policy should probably keep growth really healthy uh, for another couple of years after that as well. Uh, you've got a monetary policy that's, that's more supportive for a longer time period than in the U.S., for instance. Uh, and... Um, and you've got uh, perhaps uh, a little bit of policy diversification as well by staying invested in Europe because it has that greater value tilt, right? If you if the Fed does uh, follow through and hikes three, four times, maybe even more over the next 18 to 24 months, um, then perhaps having a little bit more value exposure in your portfolio through a European exposure might not be such a bad diversifier. So that that would be my argument to make. Strong argument there, Vader. I want to end it on that high note. Um, thank you so much for your help in working working through this interesting, I think, and really important topic. Um, I want to thank everyone for listening to Market Currents. Again, I'm Katie Nixon, CIO of Wealth Management Northern Trust. Thanks again. 
Thank you for listening to our podcast. Subscribe to Market Currents from your favorite podcast app to be automatically notified of new episodes. This audio podcast is being provided for informational and educational purposes only and is not meant to be taken as investment advice or a recommendation of any specific investment product or strategy. The information does not take your financial situation, investment objective, or risk tolerance into consideration. Listeners, including professionals, should under no circumstances rely upon this information as a substitute for their own research or for obtaining specific legal, investment, accounting, or tax advice from their own counsel.